content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show is pre-recorded. Everyday Wealth is produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky. Ms. Chatsky is not an employee or client of the firm. She receives fixed cash compensation as host and for related activities, and therefore has an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see www.edelmanfinancialengines.com slash everydaywealth. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed by the firm, technology spending, staff diversity, succession planning, and other metrics. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with personal finance expert, Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky. Hey, everyone. I'm Gene Chatsky. Thanks for joining us today on Everyday Wealth. Well, it's official. We have said goodbye to 2023, and now we've got the first full week of 2024 in the books. And no doubt, over the past week, you have heard a lot of predictions about what's to come in this new year, predictions about geopolitical events, about the economy, a whole slew of predictions about what the stock market will do in 2024. So should you pay attention to these predictions? Maybe not. That's because more than likely, when we look back from the vantage point of midnight of December 31st of this year, the big story or stories of 2024 will be things that we couldn't even imagine, let alone predict. Take the example of The Economist. Now, The Economist is one of the oldest, one of the most respected financial publications. And each year, they publish an issue dedicated to predictions for the upcoming year. In their 2020 issue, they warned about negative interest rates in Europe, election year chaos, and the possibility of nuclear proliferation. But there was not one word about the eventual story of the year, COVID. Now, to be fair, they did put out a mea culpa in their year-end wrap-up stating, well, we didn't see that coming. Like almost everyone else, we were blindsided by the outbreak of COVID-19, the first cases of which were identified in December 2019. And so the point here is, It's not to pick on The Economist as much as it is to illustrate the fact that you can't take many, if not most, predictions seriously. So if you can't depend on predictions, well, what can you depend on? Let's flip the script and take a look at the opposite of a prediction. We call that a plan. Go back to early 2020 and ask yourself this question. What if in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, the internet had buckled? What if just as the medical care crisis had started to spiral in New York City, in Detroit, in New Orleans, the internet in those places had stopped working? for an hour at a time, or a couple of hours in the late afternoon? Or what if the internet had slowed to half its normal speed? What if it had only worked as well as, say, the U.S. distribution system for toilet paper or N95 masks? That could have happened. 
In fact, it could have happened very easily. In the United States, internet traffic carried by AT&T, one of the nation's largest internet providers, rose almost immediately by 20% starting in mid-March. By the end of April, network traffic during the work week was up 25% from typical Monday to Friday periods in January and February, and it showed no signs of fading. Now, that may not sound like much, but imagine suddenly needing to add 20% more long-haul trucks to U.S. highways in a flash or 20% more freight trains, or 20% more flights every day out of every airport in the country. Now, this may not seem like a fair comparison because we think of the internet as digital, but you got to realize that all along the way, it too is constrained by both physical hardware and Wi-Fi capabilities. Anyone who has ever tried to fight for bandwidth with a teenage gamer or others working from your home at the same time really gets that. So why didn't internet provided by AT&T go down? Because AT&T rehearses for disasters. In fact, in May of 2019, before anyone had even heard the term COVID, the company ran an internal war game on how a pandemic would affect its ability to keep phone and internet service running. This is something that AT&T does routinely to try to get ready to build teams of people and their reflexes and understand what they'll need on the ground in the worst case scenarios. The Economist made a prediction. AT&T had a plan. And so today on the show, that's what we're going to talk about. Going into 2024, not listening to or more importantly, reacting to predictions, but with a plan to build your wealth no matter what the new year brings. And to help us do that, Andy Smith is back with us. Andy, of course, is a wealth planner at Edelman Financial Engines. Great to have you, Andy. Hey, it's great to be here. So before we even talk about a wealth plan, let's just stick with the topic of predictions for a sec. I have been, as you know, part of the financial media for a long time. This is something that we have discussed on previous shows. The media is interested in eyeballs, ears, attention, and they often try to capture that with fearful or negative information. In in your opinion, is that what most of these predictions are designed to do? Just get your attention? Yeah, I mean, if you know, if you look at any other scenario, we, you know, we would totally laugh in somebody's face if they told us that they could predict the future. But then all of a sudden, you get some, you know, flashy website, and they wrap it in these fancy words like data and analytics, and throw in some, you know, good-looking financial host, and then all of a sudden, people are paying attention. They click through, they read, they pass this on, they send these bonkers links to their financial advisor aka me and they say oh my gosh i just read that the world is coming to an end on such and such a date the fact is that financial commentators are no better at predicting the future than your local fortune teller the problem is that it's got this great wow factor and people buy into it okay so let's forget the predictions or at least put them off to the side for a second and and talk about a plan. When you answer those clients who send you the sky is falling emails and texts, how do you respond to them with with sort of suggestions or key components of a plan that will take them over the long term? 
Yeah, so when we talk about plan, there's a couple of different things that go into it. A, a truly effective wealth plan is based on, you know, the specifics of your individual needs and your individual goals. So at Edelman Financial Engines, when we create these personalized long-term wealth plans for clients, we're going to look at a lot of different things, right? We're going to look at financial planning, retirement planning, cash flow planning, investment management, tax and estate planning. We'll look at insurance, all of these different things together. So at any given point in time, we're always trying to solve for a particular goal. And so the goal could be, I need to retire on this particular date and I need this amount of money. So if you're interested in creating this plan for you, that's what we're going to be talking about first. What are you trying to accomplish and when are you trying to accomplish that? So that's just what I want everybody to kind of keep in mind as we talk through these things. There's a lot of other pieces that are built into this other than, oh my gosh, the world is, you know, going to come to an end on such and such a date. So in terms of kind of key concepts that I always go back to when we talk about growing your wealth, mm -hmm. there's a couple of, of, of pretty important things to keep in mind. The most important is you want to participate in your retirement plan at work to the maximum extent that you are permitted on a pre-tax basis. So basically, save as much as you can for as long as you can in your retirement plan at work. Now, inside of that, there's a couple of different caveats. There's a couple of different kind of paths to go depending upon your particular situation. So situation A, you've got a ton of credit card debt. Yeah. I want you to focus on eliminating that credit card debt first. So typically, credit card debt has a higher interest rate, takes longer to pay off. If you have multiple cards, you want to pay the one that has the highest rate first and then the next highest, et cetera, et cetera. Auto loans, college debt, mortgage debt, they typically have some lower rates. We incorporate that a little bit differently. So it's not just save as much as you can for as long as you can. It's looking at your particular situation and saying, hey, do I got a lot of credit card debt? If so, you need to be getting, you know, getting that taken care of as, as quickly as possible. Now, and here's the other. And that's just because, and I just want to sort of take a step yeah. back there because it's, it's an important point right now that the latest statistics, they landed in my inbox this morning. Americans are carrying $1.08 trillion in credit card debt, you know, almost $1.1 trillion. The numbers are steadily rising. And the way I like to think about it, I think you think about it this way too, is that the return on your money is equal to the interest rate. So if you're paying off credit card debt at 25%, that's like a 25% return on your money. If you're paying off a mortgage at 3%, that's like a 3% return on your money, which is why we hold on to the mortgage and pay off the credit cards. Right. And the other thing too is remember, when you reduce a negative, you know, less of a negative is more of a positive. So you're right. I mean, you know, you look at the rates, you figure out what you need to take care of. Now, what I tell people is if you have credit card debt that you don't expect to be able to pay off within six months, then I want you to contribute enough to that workplace plan so that at least you get the company match from the employer. So again, it's not just these rules of thumb that you blindly follow. Everybody's situation is a little bit different. So save, look at credit card debt. Past that, I really want you to try to max out your retirement plan at work. 
you really want to at least be able to get the full company match. What I tell people is don't necessarily tie up all of your hopes and dreams with whatever the employer is going to put into your 401k. You are responsible for you and you have to focus on your long term, which goes back to this idea of saving as much as you can for as long as you can. If you have, you know, a spouse that doesn't have a retirement plan at work, you can invest in a spousal IRA. If you feel that you can't contribute the max at work, then start with a smaller amount. You can do those auto escalation, you know, um, procedures or those auto escalation uh, features inside the 401k plan. The idea is save money, save as much as you can for as long as you can, because nobody else is looking out for you except yourself. So let's say you've done this, right? You, you've, you've wiped out the high interest rate credit card debt. You are maxing out your retirement plan. What's next? I want you to build your cash reserves to an appropriate level. Everybody's, what is that? Well, it depends, <laughs> what right? Is that? You know, well, it depends. Um, I want you to look at your monthly expenses and the stability of your income. So if you have $1,000 a month in expenses and your income's fairly stable, you could probably have, I don't know, three months, four months, five months worth of emergency savings on hand. If you're older, if your expenses are larger, if your income is not as stable, right, you might be all commission and it kind of changes throughout the year, you could have up to a year and a half, two years worth of emergency expenses on hand. Everybody's different. I've got younger clients who are super nervous and they have a lot in cash. I have older clients that have income streams from different places and they're comfortable not necessarily having, you know, a sizable cash position. But the idea is you need to figure out what your mandatory monthly expenses are and how stable that income is. The more stable your income right? The lower that multiple of monthly expenses can be in checking savings, you know, higher paying money markets, high yield savings. So the next question probably is, okay, this is great. I figured out how much I need. I figured out kind of how long I need to protect myself. Where the heck am I going to put it? You got some options, right? You can look at savings accounts, checking accounts, money market funds, Um, T-bills. You can look at short-term bank CDs. The idea is you want this liquid, accessible, and you don't want anything too crazy with these short-term reserves. So we are at a point in the Fed's cycle right now where they've indicated that they are going to cut interest rates next year probably three times which is going to drive down the returns that we've been getting on things like our high yield savings accounts. How do you make the calculation about whether it's okay to take that money or whether it's smart to take that emergency money and lock it up in a one year CD where you can make sure that you capture that return for the entire year or a two year CD or whatever you think it's going to be? And how do you weigh the penalty for perhaps breaking that CD if you were going to have to? Yeah, I would look at it as part of a larger whole. If all you have is cash and you're trying to figure out what to do with it, you're going to go down a different road because yes, you want to try to you know, maximize your yield as much as possible. You may go out a little bit further on the yield curve and try to capture a little bit more in interest rates just because that's all you have. And I don't know, you don't want to invest or anything else. 
What I've always told people, and this is in good markets, bad markets, sideways markets, cash is an okay part of your overall financial picture. And so if you have investments, if you have income, if you're able to save, if you have, you know, housing dialed in, if you have all of these other pieces, it's okay to have cash. Don't get so jammed up trying to figure out, okay, well, this has, you know, this gives me 80 basis points of a return. This has given me 0.65, you know, percent return. And you, you, all of a sudden you get lost in this, you know, analysis trying to figure out where to go. The idea with cash is that you want it liquid and accessible and you don't want anything too crazy. You're going to capture return elsewhere. So the purpose okay. of emergency savings is these are the dollars that you need if all hell breaks loose. So if you're getting 80 basis points, if you're getting 60 basis points, that's great. Who cares? The idea is this is what you set aside for when everything else is falling apart. All right. Well, we've got, I think, what are the cornerstones now of this wealth plan in place. What are some other things that you suggest to your clients that might not be sort of rolling off the tip of their tongues? Sure. I mean, you can go back to these kind of key parts, right? These key pieces of any financial plan. Invest in a deductible IRA. Uh, invest in a deductible spousal IRA, right? These are pre-tax you know, accounts if you're eligible. So deductible IRAs offer a couple of pretty great benefits, right? You get a tax deduction for the money that you contribute and any interest, dividends, capital gains that are earned and accumulate in the IRAs are also tax deferred upon, you know, until withdrawal. They're going to be considered ordinary income at withdrawal. So you're paying federal and state income taxes if you live in a state that has income taxes. But the idea is, again, save as much as you can for as long as you can. A lot of people ask about Roth IRAs. I like to talk about Roth IRAs only if people are ineligible to invest in a deductible IRA, right? They can't put any more money into a pre-tax IRA or if they're in a low tax bracket. So depending upon your adjusted gross income, your AGI, you and or your spouse may be able to contribute to a deductible IRA even after contributing, you know, the max to the company plan. The Roth is going to fit into that. What I'd like people to not get too crazy about or to get too complicated with is trying to jam a bunch of money into a non-deductible IRA. I want you to avoid non-deductible IRAs because the contributions don't entitle you to any tax deduction, right? So you're not getting anything uh, from it on the front end. A um, couple of things to keep in mind with the 401k, though. If the 401k plan allows you to contribute after-tax dollars, and it's not going to affect your current lifestyle, consider adding some more after-tax dollars to the 401k plan, right? So this is, these are non-deductible contributions. And then you, what you do is you take those dollars that you just contributed, mm -hmm. and then you convert those to the Roth side, um, you know, if permitted. This is um, your backdoor... Roth, Back to Roth, essentially. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, so there's some other things in there. There's IRS forms that you got to fill out if you're going to make, um, you know, withdrawals from an IRA for conversions. The form uh, for the non-deductible side, the form basically says or tells the IRS that you've already paid taxes on a portion of the money that you've already contributed. Um, it's form 8606. So if you don't file form 8606, in addition to the penalty for failing to file, 
you know, you got to pay taxes on the money when you withdraw it that you've already paid taxes on. So this is getting awful complicated. Yeah, it's getting complicated. But let's go back to the very beginning. Right. Save as much as you can for as long as you can. You don't have to make it complicated. Plow money into the 401k at work. Pay off the credit card debt. Put money into a spousal IRA if you can. The idea is you have to look out for yourself here with your longer term savings. So if you're avoiding a non-deductible IRA and you've still got money, where do you go next? Brokerage accounts, a taxable investment account. Basically, you can put whatever you want in. You can take whatever you want out. Any gains that are realized throughout the year are taxed at your capital gains rate, which changes based on you know what your, what your income is. But it's a great way to just get additional dollars in if you've paid off credit card debt, if you've maxed out the 401k at work, if you've, you know, you have some sort of non-deductible plan or Roth conversion plan, open a brokerage account, get a ton of money or get a lot of money in there and really, you know, again, save as much as you can for as long as you can. Can we talk about the tactics of saving in all of these different accounts that you're talking about. One of the things that we know about work-based plans, about 401ks and 403bs and 457s, whatever you got at work, they work because they're automatic. They work because the money comes out of your paycheck and you don't have to think about it. When you have all of these other accounts on your list, are you investing in some sort of automatic cadence so that the same happens? You can, absolutely. So, you know, we we clear uh, through Schwab Institutional. So at Schwab, they have this thing called MoneyLink. And it's this electronic link that is created between your IRA, your Roth IRA, your brokerage account, and your outside checking account. You can specify instructions that say, I want you to move this amount of money every month on the 1st or 5th or whenever. And it comes directly over from checking or savings or anything else. So you can set that up. Other custodians have the same thing. You can do the same thing. So it can absolutely be automatic from your checking account. It just takes a couple of extra steps that you have to do on your own because you're, you know, Unlike your 401k where HR said, oh, sign here, sign here, do this. You just got to set it up. But it's absolutely possible. You just have to train yourself to do this. No different than you start taking vitamins. You start taking regular walks. You start trying to eat more kale, you know, three, four, five days a week. I may be talking specifically. I don't know. But the idea is. But the idea is you just train yourself to do this on a more regular basis. It's totally possible. Very easy to get set up. If you're working with an advisor, ask him or her for more information. If you need some help, reach out, give us a call. We'd be happy to help. Yeah, what I love about this, Andy, is that it reduces stress. And by the way, you're preaching to the choir. I am a woman who keeps her moisturizer on the bedside table because I've been told that the only way it works is if you actually apply it. So um, nice and easy makes it automatic all the way. Thank you for being here. Thanks for doing this. Oh, absolutely. Always good seeing you. Nice to see you, too. We're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, we'll speak with Mark Zandi, chief economist for Moody's, about the outlook for 2024 and get his take on predictions. Stick around. Are you worried about the current volatility of the market, inflation rates, talk of a recession? 
Are you second guessing your investment decisions? What better time than now to ensure your finances are moving forward than by getting an expert second opinion from an Edelman Financial Engines planner? Whether you already have a planner or simply need a new perspective, they can help you manage your wealth plan to both weather the volatility of the market today and help you protect and preserve it over the long term. To schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today, call 833-PLAN-EFE. That's 833-752-6333. Or visit their website at efewealthplanners.com. Put your uncertainties to rest once and for all. Schedule your complimentary wealth checkup right now. We are back, and I'm excited to introduce my guest. Mark Zandi is chief economist for Moody's, where he directs economic research, and it encompasses microeconomics, financial markets, public policy. He's been our go-to guy for all of these things for the last couple of years. We're so excited to have you back, Mark. Thank you for doing this. Thanks, Gene. It's really good to be back. Oh, really a pleasure. Thank you. We, we've been talking earlier in the show about predictions, but is there a, a different, maybe more accurate term for what you say that you do? Hmm. Well, I, do I do more than one thing. <laughs> I try to do more than one thing. <laughs> Forecasting is part of what I do, and I think that's a, obviously a big part of what I do. I, I would call it a forecast. So I, I use history, try to understand what happened historically, try to measure it with data, uh, model it with different types of statistical techniques, and then use that history, that data, those models to do a forecast of, you know, what do I expect things to happen in the future as a result of, uh, you know, looking at things that happened in the past. Uh, Of course, you're making lots of assumptions when you do that. One of the key assumptions is that past is a prologue, that, you know, what happened historically uh, is informative with regard to what's going to happen in the future. And, you know, the history is never exactly a perfect guide to what's going on now and what the forecast should be, but it's a, it's a generally a pretty good guide. Although I'll have to say, you know, in the, what we've experienced over the last couple, three years, that's kind of sort of without historical precedence. There, there are, you know, things that we can look at to help us gauge uh, what we think might happen in the future. But this has been a particularly difficult time because uh, history isn't quite as good in helping us understanding what's what's happening now and what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, yeah, there have been a lot of a lot of outliers. There are many audiences for forecasts, right? Businesses use forecast, governments use forecast. Individuals try to use forecasts as well. When, when you think about individual investors, how do you think we actually should use this information? Well, let me first say everyone forecasts. By definition, you're forecasting. And when you plunk down some cash and you put it in a money market fund or you buy a stock or a bond or a home, that's a forecast. You're, you're expecting, uh, you know, uh, that the prices aren't going to go down, <laughs> that they're going to go up. So, you know, we're all forecasting all the time. Most people forecast implicitly. You know, it's not an explicit forecast. It's not like, I think this is what's going to happen. Therefore, it's just kind of built into their general thinking and their intuition. So uh, I think that's probably uh, not quite as, certainly not as rigorous, probably ultimately ends you in a not as good a spot. Uh, because you're not really thinking through kind of your underlying assumptions about what's going to happen in the future. Uh, 
So I think most most investors, uh, certainly most individual investors, they're forecasting. They don't even know it, uh, and they're yeah. certainly not explicit about it. And they probably could be better investors if they if they were. The the point that you made about the whole world in the past three years being a bit wacky. Um, how, a bit, Gene. A, a, a bit being being. I say, I say big being, time wacky. Okay, yeah. being being, you know, completely and totally, you know, bizarro yeah. world. If you're bizarro. if you're a Superman yeah. fan, right? So, yeah. how do you use the events of the past few years in order to sort of accurately forecast going forward, or do you ignore them? Like, how does it all work together? Well, there's some analogs. Uh, I, I mean, for example, the two big things that were kind of bizarro was the pandemic, obviously, and the other was the Russian war in Ukraine. In the case of the Russian war, uh, the key channel through which that impacts the economy is through energy prices, oil, natural gas, food prices, agricultural prices, commodity prices more generally. We have experience with that historically. You know, you can go back in different points in time in the 70s and certainly the 80s. And, you know, even since then, when oil prices, gas prices, food prices go up and down and all around, we have a pretty good sense of how that plays out. Uh, You know, understanding just how disruptive the Russian war would be, that's difficult. And therefore, that's where scenarios kind of come in. You know, you shouldn't rely on just one forecast. It's really a distribution of forecasts, a bunch of different scenarios that you should consider. But nonetheless, we have some good historical, you know, case studies there and analogs there. Things have changed and there's different nuances to how higher oil, natural gas, food prices interact with the way we think about the world and how we behave and what it means for the economy. But broadly speaking, we have a pretty good sense of that. The pandemic, much more difficult because we've had pandemics in the past, but they were way in the past, and we really don't have good data to really try to understand what that meant. Uh, And it it was very different than the other kinds of shocks that we experienced. Most shocks that we experience are to what economists call the demand side of the economy, to consumer spending, to business investment, to government spending. This was to the supply side of the economy, you know, the effects on supply chains. And also the other thing aspect of this was it was global, so it just complicated things even more. So, uh, So... we have some history there, but uh, we're flying more blind because the history is so far in the past, and this is so different than the kinds of shocks we typically experience. So just made forecasting much more difficult and obviously less accurate. So let's actually look forward. As you look out into 2024 and beyond, what what is your outlook as far as the economy, interest rates, inflation, where do you think we'll be this time next year? I think we'll be in a better place. Uh, I mean, 2023 ended up being, I think, better than most economists expected. I think most thought recession. By the way, Gene, I did not. I don't know. We had a conversation I, a year did. ago. We did. We discussed this, and you did, did not. Did we? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so you got me on the record, and I feel pretty good about the record, but in part because you know, there are some things that are different about the current period that are different than the past. And if you didn't take those into account, then you would have expected recession. But we didn't because of the idiosyncratic features of kind of what we've been going through. And I think that'll continue. I think we'll be able to avoid an economic downturn in 2024. And we should feel better about things. I, I mean, right now, the big disconnect is the economic data look great. 
GDP is strong, lots of jobs, unemployment sub 4%, stock market's at a record high, housing values at a record high. Most people have locked in the previously record low interest rates through refinancing, so they're sitting in a pretty good spot. I'm painting with a broad brush, obviously. It varies a lot depending on whether you're low income or high income or different parts of the population, but generally speaking, we're in a pretty good spot. But people don't feel that way, and I think it's because you know, prices did rise a lot over the last two to three years. And even though the rate of increase has slowed and it all looks like the trend lines are pretty good, we're still paying a lot more for everything, uh, food and housing and and uh, almost everything we're paying more for to, to fill our gasoline tank. And that's just making people feel very uncomfortable. But here's the good news. If inflation does remain low, which I would expect, it can, continues to throttle back, wage growth continues to outpace inflation, which has been the case over the past year, and I can expect that to continue, I think we're going to all be feeling better. That disconnect is going to uh, start to close between the reality of what's going on and how people perceive it. And I think not. it's not going to be next month, it's not going to be next quarter, but I think by this time next year, uh, we're going to be, not only is the economy going to be okay, but we're going to start feeling like it is okay. That gap between where inflation is and wage growth and the fact that wage growth has outpaced inflation, is that across the income spectrum? I mean, you know, as we look at the people who do well in this country and the people who struggle, are we seeing this kind of across the board? Yes. Uh, Great data point. Atlanta Federal Reserve uh, Board, you can uh, Google Atlanta Fed wage tracker, and they follow uh, individual workers uh, through time and see what their wages are. And they've got a lot of demographic data, you know, where they are in the wage distribution, gender, ethnicity, where they live, so forth and so on. And pretty much across the board, wage growth now is has been, over the past year, consistently stronger across the board, across all wage all parts of the wage uh, tiers uh, than inflation. So that has been the case. And in fact, interestingly enough, folks in the lower part of the wage distribution that get paid less, if you look at work in retail or leisure hospitality, those wage gains have been even stronger than other parts of the wage distribution. So in terms of wage gains, real wage gains, after inflation wage gains, they've been strong across the board. Yes. Now, of course, low income, low wage workers don't have other financial resources. You know, they don't right. have much in the. They don't have much cash. They don't have. They don't, probably don't own their own home. Only sixty percent of Americans own stocks, so those those folks probably don't own stocks, and they've been borrowing against their credit cards and buy now, pay later. And of course, with interest rates up, they're paying more in interest expense. So even though their wage growth has been stronger than inflation, it's still been financially painful because. The, they just don't have those other resources. Yeah. Two other points of your forecast I would love to touch on, housing and mm-hmm. the markets. It's been a very, very difficult time for young people, especially, to get into that first home. Is that going to get easier? It should. I mean, not right now, it's awful. High mortgage rates, high house prices, just completely unaffordable. People can't afford the monthly mortgage payment uh, at these current rates. But things are moving in the right direction there, too. If you go back two months ago, maybe it's three, the 30-year fixed uh, rate mortgage was going for 8%. Now it's 6.6, 6.65, I looked uh, yesterday. Yeah. Uh, still high. Although I, I, I just caution folks, it, we're not going back to where we were before the pandemic. That was 
we were there because of the pandemic and the, and the hit to the economy. We're going back to five and a half to six percent. So if you're doing your planning, thinking about buying a home, you better pencil in five and a half to six, not not five, not four, not three, certainly not two and a half the low. Uh, but that they're they're going to come in uh, slowly but surely, particularly as the Fed starts to cut interest rates and and volatility in the market start to settle down as a result. And I think we will avoid a recession. So that means jobs and that means wages will continue to rise. People's incomes will continue to improve. And the, here more, I say this was less, and this is another important thing about forecasts. Some forecasts I'm confident in, some not so much. I'm confident that rates are going to come in. I'm com- somewhat confident that the economy is going to avoid a recession and we're going to continue to see wage gains. I'm less confident when I say I expect some moderation, some declines in housing values, uh, but I expect that. Because eventually, folks that are living in their homes kind of locked in because they have these very low these mortgages with very low rates, they'll have to move. Life happens. Uh, divorce, death, children, uh, job change. And if they want to move, if they want to sell their home, they're going to have to cut their price to be able for the buyers uh, to be able to afford that home and to purchase the home. So I expect some price declines as well. So it, it's going to take a while before people will feel good about being able to afford a home, buying a home, but they're going to feel a lot better a, a year from now than than they do today. And they, the other thing I'd say is these things don't work smoothly. Like interest rates move very rapidly. So I'd be prepared, meaning uh-huh. uh, if you want to buy a home, don't wait until rates come in. You should be looking right now, figure out what kind of home you need, want, what neighborhood, where, you know, really think about it, really investigate, do your research, look at listings, get a sense of value, because that's the other thing. You got to get a really good sense of what, what are appropriate prices, what are not, what you're willing to pay for. And then when that window opens, meaning when rates come in, and they'll come in at some point, then you're ready to go. Make sure your credit score is good. Make sure that you've lined, you've talked to a bank or a independent mortgage bank. You need to be prepared financially and you need to be prepared for uh, what home you want and, and where you should be looking. Last question, the markets themselves. I, I We've had conversations through the years about what sort of returns you should be planning for going forward. Where, where's your head at right now? Well, I think all in, including increases in equity prices, stock prices, and dividends, and the dividend yield is probably what two percent, two and a half percent, something like that. That's the, the dividend relative to the share price. So the total return should be six, seven, eight percent per annum, something like that. We've enjoyed much stronger than that recently, obviously. So the market feels a little overpriced, but you know, for most people, that shouldn't matter. You should be on autopilot. You shouldn't be trying to time anything. Just look at this recent market rally. Trying to time that, forget about it. I mean, you, if you weren't in the market, you you missed it. Uh, it's yeah. a huge error, right? So you should be taking your income, taking some percent of that as saving and putting some percent of that saving into stocks. The uh, younger you are, the more time you have, the longer your investment horizon, the more you should be putting in stocks because they're a little bit riskier than other types of investments. But uh, you shouldn't try to time. But I, you know, a prudent planner, someone thinking about, you know, what the world's going to look like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, what kind of returns I'm going to get between now and then, I'd pencil in 7% per annum. And I, I think that would be conservative and appropriate. 
I could certainly could certainly live with that. Mark, thank you so much for being here. As always, we appreciate all of this. I hope 2024 brings you all good things. Well, what I really care about, Jean, is that my forecast is right again. So Yes, well, <laughs> right. well we're going to hold key. you to it. Oh, you're taking, gonna, you're taking that for granted. You're saying, oh, yeah, absolutely, I, be, okay. He, you're on it. All right. Well, thank you so much Thanks, for Jean. this. Take care right. now. And that is it for our show today. I want to thank Andy Smith from Edelman Financial Engines for being here as always. And of course, Mark Zandi, if you are interested in building your wealth in the coming years and doing it in a way that helps you reach your goals, give the folks at Edelman Financial Engines a call. They can help. Be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast wherever you stream your favorite podcasts or just visit us at everydaywealth.com where all of our episodes are available to you. Thanks so much for listening and we'll talk soon. You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth with Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. If you've missed an episode or are interested in additional personal finance topics, be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast. Our podcast library offers helpful insights on topics such as tax-efficient portfolios, retirement withdrawal strategies, investing, and financial planning, to name just a few. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.